Welcome to OVS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This is episode 21. This episode is an interview with Guru Shetty, a fellow member of the Open vSwitch team at VMware. Before the VMware acquisition in 2012, Guru and I worked together at Nasira. Guru works in Open vSwitch platform integration, and a lot of that is related to container platforms lately, so that's what we're talking about in this episode. On to the interview. Welcome to the podcast. Today I'm talking to Guru Shetty. I've been working with Guru at VMware and before that at Nasera since about uh, 2011. Guru has done a lot of work to integrate Open vSwitch with various platforms. And recently that includes integrating Open vSwitch and OVN with multiple container systems, including Docker and Kubernetes. So, Guru, before we jump into a discussion of containers, do you want to say anything more about yourself or your background? Yeah, sorry, I have a little cold, so excuse uh, me for my voice. Uh, yeah, Ben, it's been five years, and sometimes it's just hard to believe that it's been five years that uh, I have worked in the same team. I started off uh, working mostly around Citrix Zen server. That was mainly because when I joined Nisira, Citrix was a big user of uh, OVS, and Nisira had a relationship with Citrix. So a lot of stuff was around Citrix Zen Server integration and OVS. After that, OpenStack picked up very fast and it was all about RHEL and Ubuntu, uh, mainly because that was what OpenStack was mostly using uh, for a lot of its customers. So I spent a lot of time integrating OVS with Ubuntu and RHEL. After that, I spent some time getting OVS to work on Windows. I think I spent a good year on that. From that point on, it's been mostly around oven and containers. It, it is amazing that we've been working on this for uh, for so long, isn't it? Yeah, um, and you've been you know almost double the time that I've been working on this. So. Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's hard to believe. Uh, I've been working on it since uh, I guess 2009, and then uh, I guess even earlier if you kind of consider the stuff that we didn't call Open vSwitch yet. Right. Anyway, today uh, we're we're here to to talk about containers. Um, I, I guess that uh, most of our listeners already know uh, what a container is, but do you want to just briefly talk about what, a, what it is and, and why people use them? Right. So as a system software developer in the networking domain, sometimes it's not very obvious on why containers are useful. So when containers took off and I would talk to other networking engineers and my colleagues, Nobody could sort of make sense of why we need containers. But it sort of makes a lot of sense once you start thinking about the person who is actually writing complex applications uh, which are user-facing. So if you're an application writer, then you have a lot of dependencies. You are dependent on other third-party software, on particular versions of that software, and also different libraries. And what you really want is that you want your application to be packaged in a way that it can be deployed anywhere without having to worry about what libraries and third-party software versions are installed on that Linux host. So containers sort of provides you an ability to package your application and then it doesn't matter which Linux host you deploy it on, uh, it would just work fine. In that sense, it's not very different than a VM because you can argue that you can create a VM image 
with all the dependencies and then get it deployed. It's just that a VM has a lot more overhead. Uh, it's bigger. And in case of container, you can run two versions of your application on the same host. In case of VM, you really need a hypervisor to sort of spawn your VM. And moreover, I believe that the VM vendors, they did not do a good job with providing a way to manage the lifecycle of a VM. Docker came in and they did a very good job on the complete lifecycle management, right from the way you package your container, how to create the images and how to deploy them. So that way I think containers is pretty cool. I kind of thought uh, that VMs were going to become what it seems like containers have. And I almost see a, a trend toward subdividing systems more and more finely. So I, I wonder uh, um, what, uh, uh, what the successor uh, to containers will be from that, uh, that point of view. But that, that's kind of uh, uh, off topic here. So one of the words that you hear a lot uh, when people talk about containers is microservices. So uh, do you have a, a viewpoint on what the difference between microservices and containers uh, uh, really is? Right. So microservices is sort of orthogonal to containers in the sense that you can build microservice-based application even using VMs. So the way I look at microservices is that you have a company and you build a large product, uh, which is an application which is user-facing. And instead of creating sort of this monolithic application, you divide your application into a bunch of smaller parts, which are completely independent of each other. It has a completely different development cycle, but they have very well-defined APIs so that you know how to talk to that particular business logic. and also, you should be able to have that piece of software running independently. That is, you should be able to deploy it independently. You should be able to upgrade it independently. Uh, and as, as long as you don't change your APIs, the other guys should just not care. So in case of, you know, it's useful with containers because containers are lightweight and Docker has done such a good job with how to manage the lifecycle of containers. So microservices, using containers, it's just easier. Okay, so uh, microservices are a way to use sets of containers, and the container systems tend to do a, a good job of, of supporting how those uh, fit together. Right. So that, that's sort of the, the introduction that I think a lot of our listeners uh, probably uh, already have. So if we move forward to how this is related to Open vSwitch, well, looking back a, a few years, Open vSwitch has always tried to support a, a wide variety of hypervisors, mostly that, that run on top of Linux. And you've looked at how OVS integrates with those uh, for a long time. I mean, you mentioned how you've uh, worked with Zen Server and so on. So now that you've started uh, working with container systems for the last couple of years, I think, what's the difference between integrating a container system and integrating a hypervisor? Right. So integrating OVS with any system, I can divide it into three parts or three problems. Uh, at the end of the day, OVS is just a virtual switch, something very similar to Linux Bridge. So when you create a VM, you want to attach the VM's interface to the Linux Bridge. So similarly, when you want to attach a VM to OVS, what you really want is that whoever creates that VM, instead of attaching the virtual interface to Linux Bridge, I want it attached to OpenVSwitch. If you take the example of libvirt, 
which is a very popular piece of software which is used to create VMs on a KVM hypervisor. What I really want is a piece of code inside libvirt which instead of adding a WIF to a Linux bridge, adds it to OVS bridge. So when I say I need to integrate OVS with libvirt, it means that I need to add a piece of code in libvirt itself so that libvirt knows how to attach a WIF to an OVS bridge. The second part of the problem is, you know, just OVS as a dumb virtual switch is not that useful. It's as good as Linux bridge, but OVS can do a lot more. Uh, it has programmability via OpenFlow and OVSDB protocol via a network controller. You know, a network controller can be this humongous piece of software which can do a lot of intelligent network programming. Now, when a VM creates a WIF, the network controller needs some sort of information about that WIF. It needs to know what this WIF is about or who it belongs to or which tenant it belongs to, etc. To do that, I need to write some sort of metadata information when I add the WIF to the OpenVisage bridge so that the network controller can read it and figure out, okay, this is this particular tenant's VM and I need to program this guy in a particular way. We have it very well documented in an integration guide in the OpenVisage repository. So that's pretty straightforward. Okay, so is, is that process more or less the same for a container system and a hypervisor? Exactly, so between a VM and a container, there's really not much difference between the first step and the second step. But there is a much harder problem, which is the third step. Now, a network controller on its own is pretty useless. You need someone to tell the network controller what to do. A network controller then will come and program the OpenVSwitch. switch. So effectively, whatever features the network controller has, it has to go all the way up to the end user. Uh, so if you take the example of OpenStack, OpenStack has a UI, and in that UI, you can create something called a network, which is very similar to a switch. And then you can connect that network to a router, and then add firewall rules, etc. OpenStack, in turn, needs a hook point to talk to your network controller. And then when OpenStack creates your VM, it writes some metadata in the OpenVisage database so that your network controller can figure out what it is that it has to do with this particular virtual machine. So if you take the same to the container systems, now all the features that your network controller has, you need to somehow expose that to the user such that he can say that he wants to use that particular network functionality. I think the challenge with container systems comes around in this particular area, mainly because the creators of containers, they are mostly application developers. Whereas the creators of uh, cloud management systems like OpenStack, they are network operators. So there is a fundamental difference between who created the software in the first place. And that's where containers and integrating with containers versus a cloud management system like OpenStack comes up. Okay, so we're, we're talking about how do you integrate cloud management systems like OpenStack with containers in an OVS context? No, so I think what I was trying to get to was you want to integrate with OVS. OVS in itself is a dumb virtual switch. You want to make it intelligent, you want a network controller. And you want someone to tell the network controller on what to do. 
So when, you, when we say that we want to integrate with OVS, it also means that we are trying to integrate with the larger system. So OpenStack and container systems, if you think that they are completely separate uh, verticals, then integrating with OpenStack is a little more easier because OpenStack was built by uh, network operators or system administrators who had some familiarity with the underlying network. In case of containers, the technology itself was created by application developers and they really do not know much about networking. Ah, I, I think I see now. So OpenStack is built by network operators who have a broader view. Docker and Kubernetes and so on are built by people who build applications and they're not used to operating networks. And so their conception of what needs to go in a networking system or a network controller and how to integrate that is a little more simplistic. Right. So I remember this incident uh, right at the beginning. I was speaking to some guys at Docker about integrating with OVS. And I would talk to them about ports, meaning to say I wanted to tell them about the switch ports. But whenever I would say port, they would always think that I'm talking about TCP port or a UDP port because that is what they are used to. The word port has far too many meanings. We, we've uh, even introduced our own in OVS and I, I feel bad about that. We should have invented new words in some cases. Right. Okay, so that, that means that part of the challenge is just getting people who work on container systems to understand the, the networking concepts. So what's your experience with that? How, uh, how's it been going? Are, are, you, uh, are you having some success at, at educating or, uh, or coming to an understanding? Initially, I was you know, trying to explain the networking concepts to uh, the community which builds containers. Um, then I sort of stepped back and tried to understand the problem from their point of view. So I digress a bit here, but if you take OpenStack as an example, let us say you build an OpenStack cloud and then you give a username and password to one of your development teams. This application developer, he logs in and he wants to deploy his application. So what he sees in an OpenStack UI is that it asks him to create a network. It asks him to provide an IP subnet and then it asks him to go and attach that network to a router and then it asks him to go ahead and create a floating IP and then finally it creates a VM. You know, I've, I've even found this to be super complicated myself. I, I guess that is probably because I'm not a network operator. <laughs> probably, but you do build networking software. So it's somewhat familiar in the sense that you know what a network is, you know what a IP subnet is, but for some application developer who is a developer of a bank in New York, he sees these steps and he thinks, why do I need to do all of this? All I care is I want to deploy my application and give me an IP address or a DNS name so that I can access that application. This whole intermediate steps of creating logical switches and routers and connecting them is something he doesn't care about. If you look at the problem from that angle, I think what the container schedulers are doing, it sort of makes sense. They should not worry about exposing the networking constructs to the end user. Now somehow the networking should automatically configure underneath and do the right thing. It should provide good visibility 
it, it should just work. Uh, so I think that's where the fundamental problem is to design your networking solution such that it automatically gets configured and it just works. So is there also more of a sense in container systems you expect more to be built in? If I look at like Zen server where we did our first integration, the most configuration you had was that you configured a VLAN for a, a VM to run on. And except for that, when you connected a VM to a network, at most, you just got connected directly to a, a physical interface. There was nothing fancy there at all. I get the impression that these days, especially as container systems come along, we expect more from our networking. Is that an element of it too? Uh, right. So there are two aspects to it. One is that the person who is deploying the container, he shouldn't even be caring about what VLAN the container lands on. In the sense that if you tell him that I want my container, or he, he, if he has to go and speak to someone else to figure out what VLAN his container has to get created, and if he has 100 containers and they're all supposed to be created in different VLANs, he's probably going to try and bypass you and install his applications in a public cloud, wherein someone else who provides a better networking service or hides all the networking details from him, he, he will just find it easier to deploy it there. But at the end of the day, you still need an networking layer underneath. So the trick is to somehow hide your networking details from the application developer. Right. So we need something that's, that's more abstract and less about what physical port is this on. Right. So how do we go about that? Um, what, uh, what, what do you do about it? Or maybe it would help to talk about uh, specific examples of container systems. I know that you spent quite a while working with Docker and adding support there. So how did that evolve? Right. So we had obvious integration with different hypervisors. We had integration with OpenStack. We had integration with Citrix softwares. So we naturally wanted an integration with Docker too, because we wanted containers and VMs to get networking. So with that approach, we first looked at how can we integrate without the help of an external community. And in case of containers, at the end of the day, networking is just about network namespace. And you can easily, via a sideband, put the network interface in and attach it to OVS and just not worry about getting a native integration done via the container building community. That's how we started. Uh, we just provided a very simple script, uh, which was very similar to an existing script called Pipework. And all it did was it created a wet pair, attached one end inside a Docker container and the other end to, the, to an OVS bridge. The idea was that someone will write a container scheduler which will do this sideband integration. Uh, but that clearly was not ideal and we wanted to sort of have a native integration with Docker. So I went ahead, dropped a mail in the Docker development mailing list saying that, hey guys, we have this cool software called OpenVSwitch. It does all these awesome things and we want it integrated with Docker. But it so happened that at the same time, there were probably a dozen other container networking startups which were trying to do something similar not necessarily with OpenVSwitch, but they wanted integration points too. So there was this company called Socketplane uh, who were interested in integrating OVS with Docker. And they said that they're already working on it and they put a proposal. All hell broke loose because there were 12 <laughs> other vendors who wanted to do something similar. 
and there was a lot of fighting over in the GitHub uh, issues. And then eventually Docker decided to come up with some pluggable architecture. But along with that, they just went ahead and acquired SocketPlane. So now out of the 12 networking vendors or so, they clearly chose one to be part of Docker and then gave the responsibility of building this plugin system to those guys. So did the SocketPlane approach win out in the end then? Right, so I think what happened was that once SocketPlane became part of Docker, the Docker guys, they wanted no third-party software dependencies. For them, OpenVSwitch was a third-party software which did not come automatically with Linux. Right, host. right, you have to install it. Yeah, and for them, their fundamental, uh, I think, mantra was that you should be able to install your container on any Linux host, and they only wanted to depend on the Linux kernel. So they just decided to use Linux Bridge and VXLAN tunnels, which at that point was natively available in Linux kernel. But they did add a plugin system for networking in Docker. So how, how has that affected the equation? Right. So unfortunately, that plugin system, it did not work out very well. Uh, they were very hesitant to open up the APIs enough that different vendors could use it differently. They sort of wanted a strict control on what the API uh, can do and what information can be exposed to your underlying plugins. And I think that caused a split in the community. Uh, so for other guys, they could not do what they wanted to do. They went ahead and invented a new plugin system, which was again sort of a sideband entrance into Docker networking. And since by that time, the container itself had sort of commoditized and you really wanted to use a container with a container scheduler. This sideband uh, integration with Docker containers, it gained popularity and now you effectively have two types of uh, container networking integration with Docker. One is the Docker's native plugin system and the other one is called a CNI, which is what Kubernetes and CoreOS and Mesos use. Oh, so the, the other systems in the container space have more or less standardized on kind of a plugin uh, interface? Right. It's very simple, and it lets you do anything you want to do. I see. And this is available with Docker if you use the right uh, wrapper for it? No. So if you purely use Docker's API, you cannot use it. But if a container orchestrator deploys Docker, it can effectively create a namespace and call this plugin which inserts the network interfaces and do whatever you want to do, and then create a Docker container asking it to attach to that network namespace. So it is sort of a sideband way to do whatever you want to do. I see. So if you do some extra work uh, and, and put that around Docker, then you can make it do what you want. Yeah. So I've, I've heard these rumors of people who want to fork Docker for various reasons. Is, is, that, is that part of this or uh, is it kind of a, a side note? I, I haven't followed Docker well enough to, to understand right. it properly. There may be uh, some overlap in the sense that Docker has been continuously making Docker feature rich. Uh, they have been adding a lot of features every release which has made it a little unstable in the sense that bugs have cropped up from version to version that have been some loss of backwards compatibility, etc. 
So for a lot of container orchestrators, this was a problem because they are using Docker containers to schedule, but the runtime, which is so important for them, has bugs. So that they're building on top of something that isn't stable anymore. Right, exactly. So what they really want is a very dumb uh, container runtime, which does not have a lot of features because all the features would be in the container scheduler. Uh, so what they're saying is that, you know, we don't want all these features. Let's have a stable uh, container runtime. Uh, let's remove all the features that we don't want and make sure that it's less buggy and stable. I see. So what do you see as the future of the OVS integration with Docker? Is it currently stable? Uh, and uh, what, what what's missing or, or what do you want to do to it? Right. Now, OVS integration with Docker, there are two ways, basically. One is via the plugin system that Docker natively provides. It's called LibNetwork. And we had a fairly good integration till Docker 1.12. I don't know the version numbering scheme. That was how long ago? I think around four months ago. So four months ago, they added a few more features, which was only exposed or rather it was supposed to be used only by Docker's own scheduler called Docker Swarm. In that, they introduced a load balancing feature using IPVS uh, feature of Linux, but that endpoints that needs to be added for your load balances was not exposed to the plugins. So in effect, since I'm an open usage plugin writer and IPVS is not compatible with open switch, I can't do much about it. So if you configure a load balancer in Docker using Docker Swarm, it won't work with OVS. I see. So Docker Swarm added a bunch of networking features, load balancing, right. uh, but it wasn't exposed through the lib network. So when you use Docker with OVS uh, instead of their default networking, you can't make use of that. Yes, that's right. That's too bad. Is there uh, um, is there work to uh, to get that into lib network? Have you heard anything? So we've talked to them, and it's not very clear on how keen they are to get it all the way down to the lib network. And in the meanwhile, there has been so much work to do with Kubernetes integration, and Kubernetes has gained so much more popularity that I've been mostly concentrating on getting things right with Kubernetes and then reach out to those guys again and see how malleable they are with changing some of their architecture. That's a pretty good uh, segue because I want to talk about uh, Kubernetes too. It's sort of the, uh, I, I think in some ways it's the new kid on the block, but I hear more about it than any other uh, container related system these days. As you say, I, I know that you've been spending a lot of time on uh, Kubernetes integration and uh, you, you even have a, a new repository in the uh, OpenVSwitch organization for integrating uh, with uh, Kubernetes. So maybe just start out with why is Kubernetes such a big thing and, and how is it different from Docker? So Kubernetes comes from Google and Google clearly is a big application developer. They know how to scale their websites to uh, hundreds of thousands of users with a lot of fault tolerance. And is Kubernetes something that Google uses internally? That's never been clear to me. Apparently not. The claim is that they have over the years continuously fine-tuned their internal application orchestration software. And with all the lessons they have learned in their last 10-year journey, they took it all out and created something in the open source community from scratch. 
I see. So it, it's almost like a, a next generation of, of what they've been building internally for a, a long time. Right. So tell me more about it. I've heard that it's not really comparable to Docker in some ways. Right. If you take your own example, which is Nisira, right? So I imagine that when Nisira first got started, what you saw was that in the physical networking, there was a fundamental problem of the, of the way you do network connectivity, wherein you had to go physically change cables, manually allocate VLANs, and then deploy applications. Oh, far too much of that at first. Right. And so you came up with an innovation called network virtualization that solved that underlying networking problem. And you, in effect, would be okay with a pre-connected underlying physical fabric and all the logic on top of it in software. So in case of Kubernetes, they saw the problem in terms of an application deployer's perspective, because that is what they do at Google, and then try to solve it from a deployer's angle. And all the pieces or innovations that Kubernetes came out with, it helps in solving such problems. For example, I previously talked about how an application developer does not care about IP addresses. And in case of Kubernetes, they completely hide that information. In effect, they say that your application that gets deployed can get any IP address. You don't have control over it. What you do have control over is the name via which that application can be accessed. So it, it adds a layer of indirection right. through names. Right, which is a DNS name, which is you know how internet works. Of course. Right. And the other innovation they brought to the software was that all the applications are behind a load balancer. So when your DNS name gets resolved, it gives you actually a virtual IP address. And that virtual IP address, behind it, there are a bunch of real IP addresses. And since they say that containers can be created and destroyed as they wish, but this virtual IP address remains the same. And that way, you can deploy more or scale out your applications. You can upgrade your applications without any downtime, which I think is pretty cool. It's a very simple idea, but that did not exist in the enterprise industry, or at least it was not uh, something which is, was a default. So uh, I, I know that when you implemented this in OBS, you had to build the, the load balancing support too, because it's one of the, the basic features of Kubernetes. Is right, that right? Exactly. So uh, th that, that means that the, the integration for Kubernetes must have been a little more complicated than for other systems. And how did you go about that? Right. So once I started looking at the Kubernetes model, it was immediately obvious that without a native load balancer in Open vSwitch itself, or rather Oven in our case, which is just a layer above Open vSwitch in terms of network controlling software, we wouldn't be able to do a good job with the new generation of applications. And that load balancing is a fundamental requirement for the future generation of applications. Now, it is possible or it would be true that there are already load balancing uh, vendors who do a much better job than what we do, but that should be a pluggable thing rather than a default thing in the sense that we should not be dependent on other vendors to even provide a basic integration. And that's where adding load balancing feature into Avon, it actually has helped a lot with the integration effort. One of the unusual parts of the integration between Oven and Kubernetes is that it, it got broken out into a, a separate repository. What's, what's the story behind that? 
Right. So I wanted to add it to the open usage repository or in the sense that I started out with the goal of adding it to the OBS repository, but there were a few uh, other people in the community who felt that it would be much more easier to maintain as a separate repo. And now I agree with them because OBS itself is a very stable piece of uh, software. We take a lot of care in adding any new features. We want it to be very stable. Our review cycles can take almost a month, sometimes even a couple of months. And we cannot afford to do that when we are trying to integrate with new software. We probably a little leeway in terms of what we add. It goes a long way in terms of faster feature addition. So that way, the integration code itself, which is you know pure Python application level programming, it, it's much better that it's in a separate repository. We can experiment, we can add beta features, you can remove beta features, et cetera. So what's what's next for the Kubernetes integration? Do we have uh, everything that, that people want? Is Are there features that are missing? Uh, what, what are you thinking about adding? I think as of last week, we have pretty much all the features uh, that a basic Kubernetes integration will need. There are a few things that we can do better in the sense that because OVS already has a DPDK integration, if we make the oven gateway DPDK capable, we in effect have a very fast north-south gateway for Kubernetes. Um, and that is something not a lot of open source projects are capable of delivering at such a fast speed. So so tell us what that would mean. What would that allow uh, Kubernetes users to, uh, to do? Right. So right now, what we have is that in Kubernetes deployment, if you have, say, 1,000 hosts, you can technically have 1,000 gateways. But it's very hard to make sure that all those 1,000 gateways are working correctly. Or if you want a good visibility into what's happening in your cluster, it's sort of hard if you have 1,000 gateways. It's uh, hard to monitor them. It's hard to monitor them, and also it's hard to allocate a common port number for all those 1,000 uh, gateways. Which, which kind of port number do you mean in this case? L4. Ah, uh, okay. So the way Kubernetes works is that, in the default mode at least, is that you have an IP address for your VM, and that IP address and a randomly allocated port number via which you can NAT into your private IP addresses. And that port number is the same in every host. Okay, so if you have a thousand gateways, you need to allocate a thousand port numbers that Which would the be same. the same for every host. Yes, and not many people who actually deploy do that. Uh, people usually, you know, stick to a couple of gateways and, or maybe three or four gateways, and then load balance to those gateways. Now, in our case, if those four gateways are DPDK-based gateways then it would pretty much mean that if you have a thousand host cluster and four DPDK based gateways, it's going to be pretty fast for north-south connectivity. I see. So you can have fewer gateways, but uh, with the speed of the DPDK port, you can still make it acceptably fast. Yes. That makes sense. So we've talked about Kubernetes. We've talked about Docker in, in particular. There's a number of other container systems out there. Have you started thinking about any of those or do we have integration with uh, with them, uh, I, I know we've talked to people at Mesos, we've talked to people at uh, at Pivotal, uh, and, and maybe others. Right. Yeah, we did look at Mesos uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, we have all the pieces that we need, except for one piece that they have to provide, which is, again, for north-south connectivity. As soon as they open that up, I think it's a matter of a week to integrate with Mesos. Is that code that they need to write or a plugin API they need it's to provide? It's a plugin API. I haven't personally looked at Cloud Foundry. 
uh, but I have a couple of guys, colleagues at VMware who've been looking at Cloud Foundry and they say that Cloud Foundry 2 is looking at CNI plugins. So it should not be very hard for us to integrate with Cloud Foundry 2. And then there's, uh, there, there's Rocket from CoreOS, right? Right. So the only place where Rocket is really used is in Kubernetes. So it wouldn't matter what plugin you write for Kubernetes, it should ideally work for both Docker and Rocket. Oh, I see. I see. That that makes sense. So, uh, what's what's the future for container integration in general, and uh, what what changes do you see uh, coming down the pike? Right. So now, as I mentioned previously, that the container orchestrators or the application developers that are writing container orchestrators, they're not networking guys, and they try to solve the networking problems sometimes very simplistically. So, for example. One of the things that's happening in the Kubernetes community is around service function chaining. Oh, that's a hot topic everywhere. Right. So they don't call it service function chaining. What they say is that it's a service mesh or a, a proxies. So in effect, when traffic leaves a container, you want it redirected to a particular proxy or a special piece of container or a software without using IP routing, because your destination IP address is not really that proxy IP address. You just need to route it to that container and from there to a different container and eventually to your destination. So the, the idea is to force traffic to go through a, a proxy. Yeah, a bunch of, a series of proxies. A series of proxies, right. yeah, that, that is service function chaining, but they, they don't use that term. Yeah, they, they, yeah right. they call it proxies um, and service meshes. Uh, and they're trying to jump through a lot of hoops on how exactly to get it through all of those proxies. And this is where I think that a solution like network virtualization is so much more beneficial because we can redirect traffics to logical ports rather than to IP addresses. And I think as the container orchestration community evolves, there would be a lot of value addition that can be done by uh, network virtualization software. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to OVN adding support for service function chaining. We saw a proposal for that at the OpenStack Summit and then at OVSCon, a continuation of that. And uh, with, with luck, we'll be able to get that in the oh, the next version or the, or the, or the one after that. It's not a trivial topic. so right. I, it's, it's a hard topic. Yeah. So uh, we've kind of come to the end, but I, I want to jump back to my notes here and, and talk about something that uh, um, that I, I, I kind of skipped over in the middle. So one of the differences between uh, container systems and hypervisors is really just scale. People talk about uh, these scales for containers that would be just completely huge if you were applying them to VMs. Uh, uh, thousands of containers per host and rates of change where containers uh, might live only a, a minute or two or sometimes even less. So how much of an effect does that have on the design work that you do? And are those scales and those rates of change real in the cases that you see out there? No, I think there was some overstating done for containers a couple of years ago, mainly because people did not really understand how they will actually be used. If you take Kubernetes as an example, uh, which is sort of the most popular container orchestrator, you see that they scale up to around 1,000 hosts with around 30 pods to 100 pods per host. So in effect, you're looking at 
say 50 containers per host and there are around 1000 hosts which is not a lot okay so 50 per host is roughly on the scale you see with uh, with vms right if that's what we're really seeing do you have uh, I, I mean i think you probably say, saw the same numbers that i did a few years ago where people were saying that there were there were thousands do you have any idea where that perception came from or what changed well i think it's still about cpu and memory right and even though you have lots of applications at the end of the day your applications still need cpu time and memory time and even storage in case of a linux host so in that sense it does not change much between a vm and a container because you still need to use those hardware resources i think people initially were just hand waving a bit in terms of containers being very short-lived and things like that they are clearly more short-lived and easier to manage than a vm but at the end of the day the scale is not a ma a huge magnitude higher okay I, I know that i was at first uh, taken aback by the term microservice it made me it sounded to me like they meant things that were really small but then i i realized they were still talking about microservices with gigabytes of memory right uh, which in, in at least in my terms it, it, it isn't that small it's still vm scale yeah. Thanks for all the discussion. Uh, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know? Right. So one of the challenges right now is the where you deploy your containers. And a lot of networking solutions for containers is pure OLA networking, which is what was invented by uh, you guys at Nisira. Well, you, you were there too. Well, I, I came in a little late, but you know the idea was you know invented uh, a while back. And that's so widespread now in the sense that the, your network follows your applications and, and it's all overlay networks. But there are challenges with overlay networks, uh, especially when you are creating overlays between your virtual machines. So what happens is that in your cloud, there is already an overlay network between your hypervisors and you create another layer of overlay on top of it, uh, your performance goes down drastically. You have issues like fragmentation, etc. Too many layers. Right. And your network, you no longer have network visibility and you pretty much have an island of containers wherein they can speak to each other nicely, but any other east-west traffic to your uh, VMs or bare metal, it has to go outside via NAT, which is not uh, very ideal. And with Oven, uh, we have come up with innovations wherein you can have virtual machines and containers in the same network and there are no overlays on top of overlays. Uh, so there is clearly some innovations and benefits of using Oven in your own private cloud. You know, that one, when we came up with that in Oven, I was surprised it just seemed obvious and that everyone would want to implement it that way. And I was, I was really shocked when I went to OpenStack and people told us that was new. Right. So... Yeah, in OpenStack case, I agree that people, you know, it should have come naturally uh, to the OpenStack guys. But for the rest of the community, I understand the problem because they want to deploy it, say, on Amazon or Azure, and they really don't have control over when Amazon or Azure are going to provide such pluggability. I think they will eventually will, but in such places, you don't have a choice. But if you're trying to build your own private cloud, then I think this is the correct way to do it. Well, uh, thank you for all of your thoughts and your time. I think that people will be really interested to hear this, and I'm uh, looking forward to feedback. All right, great. Thanks, Ben. It was a pleasure talking to you.
OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.